Without further ado, we turn to our uh, scripture text for this morning, which comes from Mark chapter 7, verse 14 through 23. And we've been going over this series in the Gospel of Mark, uh, really uh, verse by verse, as Jesus reveals himself more and more. Um, it really impacts, or it's supposed to um, change the way we think about life, how we do life. And last week, what we saw is the scribes and the Pharisees, they came from Jerusalem, and their bas- basic critique of Jesus and his disciples is, why aren't you doing uh, ritual cleansings like us? Basically, why aren't you as good, at us, good as us? That's their claim. It's a strange thing to uh, criticize Jesus about. And yet the thing is, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. What really is the problem for humanity? Is it that we need to just become better people, more moral, more good? Certainly those are good things. But is that the main issue here? And what Jesus does here is he gets to the main issue of the human heart. And so let's take a look here. Mark chapter 7, verse 14 through 23. If you're able, can you please stand arise with me for the reading of God's word? These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Uh, Let's give him our full attention today. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house, he left the people, and his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Amen. Thus goes the reading of God's word. Uh, May he continue to bless it for us as the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated. And would you join your hearts with mine in a quick word of prayer? Lord, we're, we're so good at doing jobs. That's an easy thing for us. We can do it without thinking. And if only the rest of our lives could just be like this, mindlessly doing things without being intentional. And yet, that's always what seems to happen because we're so distracted with our own lives. But as we are simply kind of like forced here to to pause and to recognize the condition of our own hearts. It's not an easy thing for any of us, but will there be ever so much a gentle, tender care of your words to remind us who we are in Christ, to remind us who can really shape and change our hearts. And so we bring them to you this morning. Have your way with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I don't know about you, but I feel like for kids, every kid's favorite subject to talk about is potty talk. There's just something about different synonyms for stools and urine that bring out the giggles in a child's heart. At least that's my observation. It just can't be helped. Even though it's silly and, and a little bit embarrassing to bring up these things, it's a natural function of the human body. And so you, you try to kind of weigh the, the pros and cons of potty talk. But there's one place where potty talk absolutely doesn't belong. The dinner table. And, and you know, usually when kids bring it up, you're adamant, hey, that's potty talk, stop it. And the thing is, potty talk, metaphorically speaking, controls so much of our own lives because there are plenty of problems that we all struggle with, we're afraid to bring up because it's unacceptable. And that's what we're all afraid of, becoming unacceptable. See, potty talk, it's embedded and woven into our lives. And so because we have this idea, so long as I can look okay on the outside, I'm, I'm, I'm well put together, I got my job, I got whatever this and that, while I'm okay on the outside, the inside, it doesn't matter. It can be down in the dumps for all we care. As long as I'm good on the outside. And yet what Jesus essentially does here with all the scribes and Pharisees, their whole religiosity of looking good on the outside, Jesus aims directly in. He goes to the issue of what's just not only wrong with them, but also with us. He gets to the core of the matter. We're going to look at three things, what Jesus brings up here. We're going to look at first, what is the diet, our spiritual diet that we are consuming of? Secondly, he gets to the issue, what is the real problem? depravity. And last of all, what are we determined to become? Let's look at these three things. Let's look at the first part, diet. To be defiled and to be labeled this meant that you were unacceptable not only before your community, but also especially before God. So if you were a defiled person, you could not enter the worship of God, any community that worships God. So because of this, there are purity laws that describe the different ritual cleansings for the different acts of defilement, at least within the Jewish culture. And from last week, what we understood about the scribes and Pharisees is that they, uh, took, uh, they took the ritual cleansings to another level, to cleanse themselves, to make sure they weren't even close to becoming defiled. And when they would cleanse themselves, they wouldn't just, uh, they, they were, they were intent about not, not just cleaning themselves, uh, with their hands, but their copper pots, the vessels and the couches. They took it to a whole nother level. And the thing is, they wouldn't even eat unless they first ritually cleansed themselves. That was the big issue here. And especially when they would be in common spaces like marketplaces, they would be extra careful to make sure to cleanse their whole body top to bottom because they were getting rid of the spiritual ger or the secular germs that they could uh, per uh, perhaps uh, um, come on them while they were in these common spaces. So they cleanse themselves. And food is a common problem for everyone because everyone's got to eat. 
See, for these elite uh, religious people, the uh, Pharisees and the scribes, they were all about the ritual cleansings, and not everyone followed that. Not every Jew followed that. But eating food restrictions, that everyone had to pay attention to. And if food became defiled and you ate defiled food, it was a recipe for spiritual food poisoning. So everyone is on high alert about this issue. See, Jewish food laws, uh, by Levitical law, every Jew practiced kosher, which literally means something correct or fitting. So in their law, in their culture, they had this idea that some foods were considered clean and okay to eat, while on the other hand, others were considered unclean, that will make you undefi- uh, that will leave you defiled. I think about the kosher laws, and I think about food nowadays. And what fascinates me about food is how I uh, speak to my American friends about French cuisine and, you know, how they have uh, uh, meals like frog legs and um, frog legs and snails, like escargot. I don't know if the images are up here. Is that appetizing? Escargot right there, and then we got frog legs over here. I mean, it kind of looks like chicken. That, that, that I could eat. But the thing is, we look at these cuisines, right? And we, they, they, they say it's acceptable. But I bring up to my American friends this savory, crunchy, silkworm larvae called bandegi in Korean. Right there. Isn't that delicious? And they have such a visceral response to me saying, how can you eat that kind of stuff? See, these food laws, uh, the, the things that we find culturally acceptable, well, it's interesting to me. Maybe this just needs a French name and it'll be more acceptable. But even for myself personally, there are certain foods I'm unwilling to touch. Like since I have a pet bunny, I, I just can't fathom the idea of eating rabbits. It's just, you know, foreign to me in that way. I'd feel too guilty about it. Theologian David Zoll, he, he points out that in our food culture, that what he typically finds is how we use languages like eating clean or having cheat meals or when we follow up with our dieting program very well down to the T and to the I, he says, we usually say, I've been good. And that in his observation that somehow we've tied religion and morality into food. Kosher isn't just about food. It's really a struggle of humanity, of what it means to be accepted. Because we have our own kosher laws. That somehow, if we can just have the right job, the right romantic partner, the right kind of car, the right kind of this, all these things, if we can have it all, it's our own kosher system of what it means to be okay. What it means to be accepted. There's this philosopher named Barbara Ironrich, and she did this study on classes and people's satisfaction with their classes, and she found out that the most discontented people group within America are the middle-class people. And she said, she observed in her study that it's never enough for them. Whatever they possess, wherever they're at in life, it's never enough. And she labeled their condition as this. The fear of falling. The fear of falling. We all need to be okay. 
whatever means it, mean, uh, it takes for us. And isn't there a fear in all of us that we might be behind somewhere, falling behind? Here's what Jesus says about all our kosher laws here. Verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. And so by saying this, uh, look at the parentheses of verse 19. He declares all food clean. Jesus wasn't just disregarding uh, the cultural norm of kosher laws back then as if he just nonchalantly moves it aside so that we can all have our uh, beef kebabs or whatnot. That's not what he's getting at here. What he's essentially doing is all the laws of the Old Testament, everything from the kosher laws to the Ten Commandments to the ritual cleansings was all meant to show how God's people were unable to fulfill the law for themselves. They weren't able to do it. And it was their need, the law of God was supposed to point them to their need for a Savior who actually could fulfill everything they couldn't. God's law pointed to his standards that no one else can meet. No matter how hard they tried, they can't make themselves right with God. And this is what Jesus is getting at. Only Jesus can make us right with God to truly make us okay. Because our main issue with being okay comes from, being, uh, comes from a desire to be okay with God. That's what it's all about. I was eating at a very um, fine dining cuisine called Pho Kim Long, the best pho place in Milpitas. I took my family there this past week. And as we're uh, ordering our pho and then... Um, I ordered some spring rolls and I told all the, everyone, all the kids, you have to eat one because there's lettuce in it and you know, you gotta have some veggies with your meal. And so the kids start eating and then Miles, he looks at it and he sees the shrimp. And my kid doesn't like shrimp. But like we're all trying to enjoy our food and as soon as he takes a bite, he just says, oh, I can't, I can't breathe. I'm just like, why are you talking then if you can't breathe? And, you know, in the back of my mind, I should be more compassionate towards my kid. But, like, he's ruining my appetite for something that I looked forward to. And I don't know why, like, picky eaters for me is so hard, you know, and I just want him to just eat it. But NPR did this study, and they said that uh, picky eaters, it can't be helped. It's genetics. So I repented. I can't force, that's the thing. I can't, you can't force someone to like something that's not, that's natural propensity is not for those things. And if that's true for food, how much more so for our spiritual lives? The, the problem and issue isn't these ritual cleansings, what we do on the outside. It's our desire, our nature. It's against God. And that's what Jesus gets at. He goes straight to the issue. It's a heart problem. We are depraved. Which brings us to point number two. Here's what Jesus says about all our kosher laws uh, that we have, whether it's the kosher law of success, whether it's the kosher law uh, of status, whatever it is. Here's what he says about all kosher laws. Verse 19. It, is, uh, it enters, uh, verse 19, it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it is expelled. There's the potty talk. 
nothing represents filth, disgust, uncleanness, and defilement than human waste. As a, as a matter of fact, all the, all the feces back then were supposed to be burned up outside of Israel's encampment. They weren't even allowed to have it within their uh, sanctuary, uh, definitely not close to the temple. And so what they would do is they designated an area called the dung gate outside of the city, right on the outskirts. And there it was farthest away from the temple, so the smell couldn't get there. And that's where they would burn up all the defiled things, especially human waste. All our antics at being okay without God, according to Jesus, is nothing but dung. That's what he considers it. Instead, the real issue is verse 21, that out of the heart of man come all evil thoughts. Out of the heart of man come all such evil things. And this list, you, you look at it, and, and the point of this list is that, oh, which one of these do I struggle with? If none of them mention me, I must be okay. That's not the point of why Jesus says all these things. The point of what Jesus is getting at is that we share a corrupted nature just like everybody else. We call this total depravity, that all of us have a corrupted nature, meaning we are all tainted by sin, some to a more degree, some to a lesser degree. This doesn't mean that we are as corrupt and as evil as we can be, but that our whole nature is affected and tainted by sin. See, the problem is not that you're not okay. It's worse than that. Ephesians 2.3 puts it, it says that we were by nature, by nature, children of wrath. Meaning, our natural desire is not for God. That's not the natural desire. You know, a lot of people are offended by this. Rightfully so. But at least consider some of the research. Studies have shown that kids, by the age of four, they show signs of finding pleasure in another person's pain or distress. So imagine like siblings getting in trouble. The other sibling uh, feels delight in that for some reason. Or at age three, they start keeping track of whether you are indebted to them. Aren't kids so lovely? Or at age four, kids develop this sign of karma and justice and they per- perceive everyone that's vulnerable and suffering as deserve- getting what they deserve. That's their fate. This is the heart of depravity. No one had to teach these things to them. Why? Because by nature, we are depraved in heart. Our desire is not naturally for God. Theologian Thomas Cramer, here's this quote, he put it this way, that he says, uh, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. That you cannot fake desire. You love what you love. It can't be helped. And yet, the only way that your desires, your affections, your love, your heart can only change 
is only if it's met with a greater love. That's the only way. A greater love has to replace it. When I was on vacation, I was having a heart-to-heart with Kathy, my wife, and uh, one of the things that you have to understand about her is that she's a really fun person. She likes doing fun things. Like, for instance, it's little things like stationery. You know, she can't just buy regular tape. It's got to have fun drawings and cute pictures on it. Or, you know, when we go out, she's always trying new foods because it'll be fun. Um, she, she, fun is like one of her love languages. And so I was curious about this because I asked her uh, point blank, hey, do you think I'm a fun person? Do you think I'm a fun person? And she tells me, no. And I wasn't devastated by that answer because I knew I'm not that fun of a person, right? Like my idea of fun is reading a book in a hammock and drinking coffee. That's my idea of fun. And so I was just thinking, wait, wait a minute. But even when we were dating, I was even less fun. So I was like, so I had to ask them, why, why'd you marry me? Like, this doesn't make sense. It's like your biggest love language. And she said, but I, but I see these other things in you. And that's why. There's this one writer, he put it this way, that to love someone is to see a miracle that's invisible to others. To love someone is to see a miracle that is invisible to others. And I realized when God looks at us, he literally sees invisible, like there's no affection or love for him. But he can only see it because he can will it in us. He can replace a greater love for us. Because God wills himself and is determined to love us. Which brings us to the final point here. What is God determined to do? In all foods being declared clean and acceptable, it also means he can make us clean. And here's where people struggle the most. Because if I believe in God and what he has done for me in Jesus, and I wholeheartedly believe in this, why am I still like this? Why, why am I still angry when I know I shouldn't be? Why, why am I so petty? Why am I so envious of other people and I can't just be grateful for where they're at? Why is it that I have a hard time being content and thankful and instead there's more resentment and it's embarrassing to admit, but I'm like this. Why? If God so declares me clean in Jesus, why do I struggle like this? You know, in our community group, one person was sharing how they, uh, they said, it's so hard to be Christian. It's like I'm stuck in one giant big sin hole. I thought it was such an apt metaphor. Sin hole. Something we can never get ourselves out of. See, the great reformer Martin Luther, he came up with this phrase in Latin, and it's this up here, Samuel Justice et Peccator. My Latin's not that great, so please forgive me. Which means that we are, as a believer, we are both righteous and sinners at the right time, at the same time. Righteous and sinners at the same time. You know, logically, these two things, they, they don't go together at all. Yet for some reason, 
here is the wisdom of God. I, I'm really not a big fan of messes. I don't like messes at all. This isn't just metaphorically speaking. I hate kinetic sand. I don't like kids' slime. It, I, it just drives me crazy when we go. I love going to the beach, but I don't like the sand that comes with it. I just, I, I'm just not a big fan of messes. And I used to live in this place where the backyard, it was all dirt. And on one particular day, it started raining and pouring, and it just created these giant puddles of mud and water mixed together. And Miles decides to go out because he got this new raincoat jacket. So he puts it on, he goes out, and he's getting hit by the rain, and then he sees the puddle. And then he dives right in like, he's, like it's a swimming pool, and he starts you know, swimming and, and spinning around. And then little sister sees, oh, big brother did it. Let me do it too. So she goes in. Now they're both getting dirty. They start throwing mud everywhere, and they throw it at me too. And inside, I'm like steaming hot. You know, I, I'm so mad. And so I just like, I, I, I was like, at that point, I, I, I just accepted I lost all control. You know, you just have to accept it sometimes. And so once they were done having their fun, I put them in the bath and I'm cleaning this dirt away from them. And I'm so mad, you know, like I hate messes. And why would they do something like this? But I also laugh because it's funny. So I'm both angry and joyful at the same time. It's an angry joy. And I wonder perhaps maybe this is what Luther is getting at that there is a, God can hate the sin that's in us, but it can't take away from the fact that we are his children. See, for to be declared clean and holy isn't so much about God's backhanded way of saying to you, you better not mess this up. Rather, I realize what, when God makes us holy, when he makes us clean and he declares that on us, he makes us his mess. We become his mess. His mess. This is only possible because of the one who was actually expelled on your behalf. Jesus went beyond the gates of dung, of defilement. He entered into the valley of the shadow of death where Jesus, who knew no sin, became defiled for you so that you might become the righteousness of God. It's this kind of determined love that he has for you that can create and produce change, whether in small increments or giant leaps of growth spurts. God is determined to love you, that he has declared you clean, making us okay with himself by what Jesus has done for us. And if that's the case, you can come clean too. Let me pray for us. Lord, at the end of the day, we're very pitiful creatures. We play a good game on the outside, but internally, it's messy, Lord. There's desires that compete 
there's dysfunction that we carry and have. And yet for your son Jesus to look at us and say, be clean. For you to actually want the mess, messiness and all. No other God is like this. All the other gods, they tell us to get put our act together, get things right, and then and then we can be acceptable. And yet here you are saying, no, I, I want the mess, everything, all that it includes, all the baggage, I'll take it all. Jesus, thank you for your merciful heart that if you are so determined to love us in this way, teach us what it actually means to be clean according to your eyes and your eyes alone. Change the wills of our hearts because our God is so good to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.